Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 157, a conversation with Allison Tierney. Allison Tierney is a board certified oncology dietitian and cancer thriver, and she empowers those affected by cancer to conquer fears, take back control, and fully support their body before, during, and after cancer treatment. Allison herself was diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma in 2022 at the age of 33. Her knowledge base of oncology nutrition was able to support her throughout her entire treatment. And today she uses both her professional and personal experience to help other cancer thrivers do the same. On today's episode, we talk about it all. We talk about her initial diagnosis, feeling that initial lump and what followed, how she used her nutrition knowledge to help herself throughout treatment, Allison chose to do fasting during chemotherapy. So we'll talk about why she decided to do it and what that looked like for her. We talk about cancer and nutrition in general. And I think that this conversation will help people on all aspects of their cancer treatment. And we also touch on alcohol. And I have spoken at length about how alcohol increases cancer risk. It is a known carcinogen. Allison herself does not drink. And she talks about how she's navigated some of those conversations about why she's not drinking. And I think that there are some really helpful tips in there as well. With that, let's get right into it. And it is my absolute honor to welcome Allison Tierney to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski. I am a board certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancer. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share people's stories, experiences, journeys during the cancer treatment period and beyond into survivorship and life after cancer. I truly believe that sharing people's stories, talking to experts in the field, helps people become more educated so that they can become empowered patients and advocate for themselves. As a reminder, this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. All of the information here is general to take back to your medical team. All specific medical questions should, of course, be directed to your healthcare team. Allison, welcome. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for letting me be here. It's such an honor. Uh, So tell me a little bit about yourself, your work, who you are, all of that. Yeah, wow. That's so much I feel like sometimes. Loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My name is Allison Tierney, and I'm a wife. I'm a mama of two young daughters, and I'm also an oncology dietitian by profession. I live in Wisconsin, and becoming an oncology dietitian was actually a second career for me. I actually have a previous degree in business and then went back to school to be a dietitian. And, you know, just to make a long story short from that standpoint is like, I finally feel like I'm in the place that I'm supposed to be as an oncology dietitian. Um, And as we can definitely get into, you know, a lot of people will say that my career took an ironic twist when I was diagnosed with breast cancer myself and um, went from being the practitioner over to being the patient. Let's kind of dive into that because I think you probably experienced it from a very different perspective. Um, so walk us through that, you know, original diagnosis, how you were diagnosed, what that felt like. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I have a very extensive family history of cancer. My mom is a three-time cancer survivor, breast and thyroid. Um, My grandfather passed away from liver cancer. My maternal grandmother passed away from lung cancer. My paternal grandmother had breast cancer and my godmother had breast cancer. So it was very extensive. And that's actually really what got me into the field of number one, nutrition, and then also oncology as the specialty. And I went to school telling all of my professors, I want to be an oncology dietitian. That's what I want to do. And why I speak the importance of that and say that part as part of my story is because we actually don't get a lot of training in oncology nutrition in the undergrad degree to become a dietitian. There's a little bit more in the, in the master's program. If you go that route, um, there's just not that much there. So I was seeking 
every single opportunity I could to get experience in oncology. I was shadowing the oncology dietitians in the area. Um, I was very blessed to be able to get a rotation as an outpatient oncology intern at a well-known cancer center. And then that employed me afterwards. So that's kind of where my story starts with oncology nutrition, but in cancer itself is that I'd seen so many of my family members go through treatment, go through the experience and then had been, you know, working for nearly a decade when I was diagnosed. So I had seen it from the practitioner side of thing and the caregiver side of thing, but of course never as a patient. And that's what I would often tell my patients is I've never sat in the seat that you're sitting in, you know, kind of referring to the chemo chair or whatever that treatment might be, but I've worked with a lot of people to help them get through it. And now that level is so different. So Back in um, May of 2022, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, how it all started is I actually finished breastfeeding my second child and had an annual exam with my OBGYN. So did a routine breast exam. We did find a lump during that exam, but we didn't really do anything about it. And the reason for that is because I was 10 days out of breastfeeding. You know, we easily talked about the changes that happened during breastfeeding and um, I had had a lump before between my pregnancies, had an ultrasound, went away after a cycle. So we kind of took that same approach. And I even remember in that doctor's appointment, just kind of, oh, there's a lump here. And then just shooting the breeze after that and not really focusing on it more. Mm-hmm. And it was when I went home and told my husband, you know, we found a lump and you feel it for me so that I can keep an eye on it, but you can also feel it too. So that way know, if there's changes, I can have somebody else's, you know, eye on it essentially. And he admits to me now, he's like, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think that there's any concern, but I was actually preparing for a presentation where I was going to be the expert on breast cancer nutrition at a medical conference. And I came across some information that talked about breast cancer after pregnancy and breastfeeding. And although it was rare, you know, how it could happen. And I knew that because I had worked with tons of patients. Mm-hmm. was that little thing that made me think, I think I need some extra peace of mind here, especially with my family history. That was something that was really important to me. So I messaged my doc and said, you know, I'm just concerned about this. Can I just get some peace of mind before I go to this conference that I'm presenting at right away, you know, got me an ultrasound and that ultrasound turned very quickly into a mammogram and then a biopsy all within, gosh, four or five hours of each other. I felt actually very blessed to have that really quick turnaround that I know some women don't get to experience. And it was at that moment that the radiologist told me, you know, we do need to get a biopsy. However, I feel pretty confident to know what I'm looking at. Let's just verify it. And then, you know, 48 hours later was verified that um, at that time, it was the diagnosis of DCIS with micro invasion. And, um, didn't tell anybody at the conference that I was presenting that what happened except for uh, one co-presenter that I had for one of the presentations came home, met with my surgeon. And I think I thought I was going to have a lumpectomy and kind of be it right. Not that that's not a lot in itself because it is, but I walked in and part of the interesting part of my journey is actually that I was treated at the same cancer center that I was a dietitian for. So I currently work in my own private practice, but I started, ran and grew the oncology nutrition program at this cancer center. And I was there for several years until I left on my own to work in private practice. So my breast surgeon was my colleague. My oncologist was my colleague, right? All of these interesting pieces of it. And I feel blessed about it because I was essentially able to handpick my team and I had worked with the oncologist and kind of weird to say, but I knew beforehand that if I were to ever be diagnosed with cancer, this is who my oncologist would be. Right. Yeah. And so I walked in and I told my breast surgeon, cause my husband and my mom were there. I'm like, pretend I don't know anything because you know, there's so much overwhelm. Right. And I don't want to assume that I know everything either. Um, but you know, what's, what are we looking at? And she's like, well, we need a mastectomy. And I was like, kind of like taken aback. And she said it was really because of where the tumor was located that the option of having a lumpectomy wasn't there, um, saving the nipple wasn't there. Um, and so then it was the decisions of what to do with surgery. So at that moment, the, ex- the expectation was surgery. And I had to decide what that surgery looked like, whether it'd be a single mastectomy or a double mastectomy reconstruction or not. And, um, so I actually chose then to have a double mastectomy because I felt, you know, I have such a f- extensive family history. I'm just, I'm going to do this right now. 
not knowing the results of my genetic testing, which actually came back positive. And it made sense to me, but at the same time, I was surprised because I know the percentages of the, you know, breast cancers and cancers that happen with genetic mutations is relatively low. So I was shocked at it, but it kind of made sense of that family history a little bit more. Um, so anyways, a double mastectomy was then recommended. So I opted to have a double mastectomy with D-flap reconstruction. And at, um, during the reconstruction, or excuse me, during the double mastectomy, um, they did test my sentinel lymph node. Thankfully it was negative. Therefore I wouldn't have had to have radiation and therefore the plastic surgeon continued on with the D-flap reconstruction. And then about a week later, the surgical pathology came back from DCIS with microinvasion to uh, invasive ductal carcinoma. And that was the time that being an oncology dietitian and being in the field, I knew that the pathology report is not what I should have like been reading. I'm like, these are words that I don't want to see. Right. And, you know, as patients, we try to be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm not going to read my, my chart report. Right. Well, I definitely did. Yeah. <laughs> and um, ended up messaging my nurse navigator because my nurse navigator was actually a friend of mine. And I was like, Hey, uh, when are we going to follow up on these, the surgical path? And she's like, you read the report, didn't you? And I was like, yes. And so anyways, long, complicated story from, from there on out, but I was diagnosed with triple positive invasive ductal carcinoma. So I would have three months of chemotherapy and immunotherapy followed by the extra, the continuation of nine months of immunotherapy to finish out the one year of treatment. And so, um, let me just ask a couple of points here. So the immunotherapy, you're talking about HER2 therapy, right? I just want to yes. clarify, because sometimes those words get mixed. And a lot of times now, because we have immunotherapy with Keytruda for triple negative, right. you want to be clear, people listening, that you're talking about anti-HER2 therapy. Yes, absolutely. It was for the HER2 component. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you had kind of, as I'm hearing this story, right, all along, you thought it was going to be a lumpectomy. Then it was a mastectomy, thought it would be DCIS with microinvasion. It was invasive ductal. You weren't sure you were going to have a mutation, right? All of these things. And how did you handle kind of all of these? I don't want to say setbacks because it was really just information gathering, but in your mind, how do you handle that kind of change from what you were expecting mm -hmm. and mentally probably preparing yourself for to what actually occurred? Yeah. And that's a really great point. And I, what you hit on the head perfectly was the expectation component of it. Right. And I think a lot of our journey as survivors has a lot to do with expectations. Right. And if we can be better prepared for maybe what to expect, I think it can kind of um, lessen the blow of each time. Right. And I think because it wasn't what was expected, you know, my surgeon told me, oh, I, I would not even second guess that the this is for the back, you know, I know it does happen right after that surgical path was really hard. And I remember my husband talking about, he's like, that was the hardest for me because I didn't think that they explained that possibility well enough that we thought we were essentially in the clear once your lymph node was negative. Um, and so I do remember thinking back to that though. And in the beginning for me, it was okay, this is the next step. This is the next step. This is the next step. And I just had to keep on going. Right. Um, but I think actually some of the hardest part I felt there was when I knew we were waiting for the HER2 positive component to come back when we were waiting, I knew that if there was positive it meant a year of treatment. And that was really hard for me to hold, like to think about, because when you think about a full year of treatment, it seems like such a long journey, right? You know, at the beginning of it, in the middle of it. And a difficult time managing the expectations that I had expected either from experience or what was based on my family history and experience and having a completely different outcome and experience that my mother and my grandmother and et cetera had felt. Um, and I think that was the hard part. And I also had a really hard part time finding my way in the breast cancer community as an oncology dietitian and as a survivor because a lot of people know me as an oncology dietitian and I never felt like I could be either just an oncology dietitian, but most importantly, I never felt like I was just a patient, right? And I wanted to be able to be just a patient sometimes. And I, I still struggle that to, with that to this day about finding my community and finding my people that works because of that unique dynamic.
So can, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, it's really interesting because you have your feet in, in both worlds, right? In a way, um, how did you find your people in your community? And I know you made the decision to share on your professional, you know, social media page and your accounts about your diagnosis. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, what that was like and how you found that community of people? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was first, it was like becoming aware that I was struggling with that. I think one of the most instrumental things in my entire journey, especially with the mental piece was working with um, a cancer therapist and a cancer counselor. I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to work with that individual. And I'm still working with that individual today into survivorship. Um, and, but I wasn't aware of that at first. And what the time, when I really noticed it the first time, I remember it was one of my chemos and I was just, I was very fatigued. You know, it was probably around like seven or eight, my a cycle. So, you know, you've been doing it for a while. And I remember that the nurse would walk in who was also a coworker of mine. And I would kind of like sit up and I would kind of put on that face, like, you know, kind of like, I'm ready for it. Here we go. Like I can do this. And then she'd leave the room and I'd kind of like sit back down and my husband was with me. And I remember on the way home, I remember apologizing to him in the car and said, I'm really sorry that when I'm conversing with you, it's not the same. And when somebody else is around, I'm like, same old Allison. And I said, it's easier for me to pretend with them than it is for you. And I kind of found out that pretend wasn't right, the right word, but it was where I was sharing my energy. Right. And it was that understanding that I worked through is that when I walk through those doors as a cancer patient, I walk through those doors almost every day as a professional there. And so the counselor, we talked about how, you know, walking through those doors was you still felt like you had to put this professional game face on because you were their oncology dietitian. I had been gone for like three years and people still introduced me as, oh, she's our oncology dietitian, right? And so, you know, that's where a lot of that hardship came through. And I think when it came to finding a community, it was honestly, it came mostly from some of my previous clients that I had worked with because I for some of them, I felt very comfortable sharing and I knew they would be able to relate to me and they just welcomed me with open arms as one of them. Right. And honestly, I think that's where I found the best community. Um, I've had some really great experiences on Instagram with the breast cancer community and made some really great friends. I've had some poor experiences on Instagram as well, but I think that can be something that's so helpful is finding people that might be in the similar age range, similar season of life. You know, do they have young kids as well? Are they about a similar age? And because I would probably, I don't want to speak for all young breast cancer patients, but I do think many of us feel like this when you're the youngest patient in the room by like 20 years in that waiting room, it's really hard to feel um, that you're going to be able to find your people when you are, even though, you know, you're not the only one going through this at a young age, it feels like it when you're at your own cancer center, usually. You know, it's really interesting that you talked about this need to put on this professional, like, I'm okay, I've got this, right? Like this persona that uh, you weren't really, weren't really feeling. It's an interesting perspective. Going back, is there anything that you would have done differently? You know, would you still have chosen to get treated at the same place you know, not, not talking about the quality of the team. I'm sure they were fantastic, but just some of these experiences that you're talking about. Yeah, I've actually thought about that. And that's a really great question. And I do, I would go back and do it again. Like my experience with the cancer center was fantastic, very quality, but I would have done different is allowed myself the grace to feel what I was feeling at any moment. And be willing to share that or show that with the nursing staff, the oncologist, whatever it might be. Cause I don't think I started doing that until later into my treatments. Um, and I think I would have done a little better mentally and emotionally had I give granted myself that grace before. That's a really important point. Talking about the actual treatment and some of the physical side effects and, you know, knowing again, what you did as an oncology nutrition, can you talk a little bit about like how you prepared for that piece of it in terms of nutrition and like what surprised you and what was good, what was bad? Yeah, absolutely. So I felt really blessed to be able to have the knowledge base that I did to be able to 
it comes to treatment, uh, my particular treatment was very commonly known to cause peripheral neuropathy. Um, so one of the biggest things that I did from that standpoint was to ice my fingers and toes during the course of treatment. And I found really great success with that. Um, and what I find with working with people all across the country from that standpoint is it seems like different cancer centers have different protocols and what they're willing to do for them. My nursing staff was like, they would get me the ice. They would, they would pretty much set me up all together. And I know that's not the case across the country for most people. So I was very blessed from that standpoint to have that. Um, I did cold cap, which I'm about a year out of treatment. And for those that can see a visual, I have very long, thick hair. Um, I was very blessed with very good turnout of cold capping. My cancer center did tell me that I had one of the best positive outcomes that they had seen so far. Um, I, I often joke that I have Greek heritage. So I often joke that it's the Greek hair is finally paying off from the <laughs> standpoint of like, you know, the dark hair that yep. you don't mm -hmm. usually want to have everywhere. Like it's like, okay, here's the benefit of it now. Thank you, Jesus. Right. Okay. I finally see right years and years later. I see yes. this. Yes, exactly. So, so that was great. And, um, when it comes to nutrition, I, I did stick with my very similar eating pattern. I follow a plant predominant diet. Um, and I did do that during the course of treatment, but you definitely experience, I mean, I did experience nausea and, um, I relied a lot on ginger and peppermint actually for though, um, to help alleviate the nausea. Um, and I was able to really focus on, um, making sure that I was having plant-based protein. And I think what a lot of patients often forget too is complex carbohydrates. Um, and I think part of that is because protein is pushed so much during the course of treatment, which is necessary. Um, I do think that's super important to be talking about, but I think oftentimes as a result and potentially because of some fear associated to carbohydrates in the cancer community, it's often forgotten to include these complex carbohydrates that are really important for helping to manage that fatigue. Um, and I will say too, that I think one of the greatest things that helped me and we were so fortunate to be blessed with some gifts and so forth from people was meals and meal plans that were already cooked for us, whether it be a local meal service or people bringing us meals, because I remember, you know, during treatment, you know, I know the research, I know the importance of nutrition during the course of treatment. And I had to tell my husband, I probably will not eat unless it's put in front of me. So can you please help me? by putting something in front of me, I will eat it then. So it was enough to like be aware of what I was willing to do and what I needed help with and communicating that help to my husband too. Part of my um, nutrition plan, I actually did do fasting for chemotherapy. So I didn't know if that was something that you did want to talk about. Yeah, that would um, be great. Okay. Yeah. So, and the reason I kind of am usually cautious about talking about it is because fasting for chemotherapy is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a very important piece for people to understand and there, it can be done in a wrong way and it can also be done, um, where it needs to be stopped. Right. And I think that's really important. Um, so I did, um, I came, I came loaded with research to my oncologist said, well, this is what I'd like to do do? What do you think about it? Um, because of our unique relationship, he was like, Alison, I trust you do what you think is best when it comes to it. And so I did opt to do fasting. Um, I had weekly chemotherapy, so I fasted before and after chemotherapy. And I think what's important to note too, you know, speaking from that professional standpoint to that personal standpoint is that I did have to modify my fasting partway through treatment because I had, was losing a little too much weight too quickly. And I thought, goodness, this is not going to be sustainable for this many more weeks. I need to adjust it. And I did. And after adjusting it, I was able to maintain my weight um, all the way throughout the rest of treatment. Um, and that was helpful. And when you say, um, so, when you say fasting, just to clarify, was it a fasting, like a window you did intermittent fasting and what window did you follow? Yeah. So I did follow a, a water only fasting during that time. And since I had weekly chemo, I had, um, I had worked with patients before that were doing fasting for chemotherapy, but I had never worked with one that was actually doing it weekly. And I was a little like, Oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? Right. Um, and of course reached out, reached out to colleagues of mine to help, you know, make sure that they had a watchful eye about what I was doing too. Um, so I ended up doing 24 hours prior to chemotherapy and 24 hours after chemotherapy. So right when that I, 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 I
tomorrow. Um, and I would usually um, break the fast with like a tofu scramble with a bunch of veggies. Um, and I honestly, I thought the first day was the hardest. I thought chemotherapy day wasn't too bad um, because there's so many things going on that you don't necessarily think about it as much. And I actually thought the last day was the easiest, which ended up being about a half day for me um, because I would break my fast in the afternoon on a Friday after a Thursday treatment. And I don't know if it was easiest because it was the final day. And sometimes people do feel their best after it or um, because I knew I was eating that day and I was just like, oh, I can do this. Like I can make it through. Um, but I will say that it was very challenging. And I look back on it and I'm like, wow, how did I do that for 12 weeks in a row? I have no idea. Um, so, but I found it very helpful for myself. Um, and I'm glad I did it. Can you talk us through two things? I want to be very clear that, you know, if anyone is listening and wants to do that, that's something that you want to make sure you're talking, you know, very closely with your healthcare team about, because it's definitely not right. For everyone, why did you decide to do it? You know, can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits that you were thinking about? Sure, absolutely. The reason that I decided to do it for myself um, was truly because I'd seen the research and I'd seen a lot of success stories in individuals that were going through similar journeys that were like me, and primarily for um, the the benefit or the hope that it would reduce the side effects related to chemotherapy. And I think that's where we have the most research that's available on the benefits for fasting for chemotherapy is how well it can help reduce those potential side effects. Uh, and for me, it was, I mean, nobody wants to experience any side effects, but as a mom of two young kids, I knew like, I still have to parent. I still, you know, like, and to me, keeping up that quality of life throughout the course of treatment was important to me. So that was the biggest reason I chose to do it. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's definitely not easy. I mean, you're looking 48 hours every week, roughly. Yeah. It actually ended up being close to like 52, like, because, and then yeah. in the beginning, right. Yeah. In the beginning, like one of, before I modified it, it ended up being like 65. It was, whew, it was long. Right. But I did feel, I did feel good mentally. It was, it was more challenging mentally than anything. And, you know, I, I will say I haven't had too many people or really any, I think who've done it. I know people do do it, but I think it's important to be, you know, that's something people are considering to be really realistic about what the benefits are. Um, you know, I think there is a little bit about, you know, some people think about kind of fasting for reducing recurrence risk, but during that, during that chemo period, there's not as much data for that, you know, so I think it's really important that you talked about it from a side effect uh, mm -hmm from a side effect standpoint. Um, and I think people have to also be mindful if you are on other medications, if you have diabetes, you know, things like that, that could potentially make it a little bit more challenging. Yeah. Or if, or if you're underweight to begin with, or if you've lost a fair amount of percentage of your body weight leading up to diagnosis or leading up to treatment, that is another consideration as well. Be, now the research is, you know, that's available on it shows that, you know, weight stability and so forth is actually, it sounds like it wouldn't because you're fasting, right? But typically you need to make up that calorie that you weren't consuming during those days on the days outside of fasting. And I think that's important to note too, is that you're still making, trying to make up that nutrition during the non-fasting time. And I think a lot of people forget that part too because if you're nauseous and you don't feel like eating and I think what you said about you know I'll eat it if it's in front of me is a really important point because what we see is a lot of people feel okay but they don't feel great so they're not as likely to go make that nutritious meal if it's not right in front of them and there's they'll snack on you know whatever is in whatever's there right and even if it's yeah. not the most nutritious option yeah. And it's, it's a really vicious cycle. And, and I'm sure every survivor knows this, that it's one of those things is that you're not feeling that well. So you either don't eat or you choose for an option that might not be as ideal and therefore it creates more fatigue. And therefore, well, then you're going to just keep doing the same things over and over again. And that's where, you know, being able to communicate with whatever caregiver you hopefully have. Um, and I also even encourage people that if there is a meal train or a meal plan set up for them, um, don't be afraid to provide some instruction of like what those meals look like, right? I have a lot of patients that will say, um, oh, it's so generous. It's so nice, which it absolutely is. But also from the caretaker side of things, they want to, they want to know what to make, right? So if you can help them with that, they'll just like, oh, can you make this type of meal? And if you're sharing recipes or your, um, 
significant other and others can say like, oh, here are the recipes that they enjoy. Can you please make these? That can be really helpful too. So usually when it comes, I have to encourage some patients to say like, all your caregivers are the people that are helping like exactly what you need. And I think sometimes it's really hard for us to do that because it's hard to ask for help. Right. And when people are being generous already, so if we're going to give them, you know, different stipulations or requests, then we feel a little bit bad about it, but they truly do want to do whatever is best for you and want to help with that. One of the things that I like to tell people is, you know, if you know, okay, I'm starting chemo on, you know, this day, or this is the week where I don't feel great. Try to prepare stuff in advance that you can freeze and just easily defrost. Um, again, just to, again, avoid that trap that you talk about, right? You don't feel great. You don't eat. And then you feel worse and it spirals. Absolutely. And keeping those and using your energy when you have it to do that. And I want to come back to what you said about complex carbohydrates, because you're right. There's a lot of misinformation about carbs and that sugar causes cancer. And um, you know that it does not. Your body needs glucose. And if you don't eat it, it won't make it. But uh, tell me about your you know, how you counsel patients on that and what are some good complex carbohydrates that you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's so many great choices when it comes to complex carbohydrates and many that are gluten-free. If somebody needs to follow a gluten-free diet as well, I think sometimes I like to think about things that like, there's always kind of like a good, better, best type thing here, right? Some people are like, is this good for me? And then I say, well, compared to what, right? It's kind mm -hmm. of always yep. in comparison, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I do say that, you know, those complex carbohydrates that are going to be more superior are going to be, um, in bulk. So, um, trying to find that whole grain that is in its most intact form as much as possible, rather than like falling down that processing, um, scale essentially. Right. So that's where like brown rice, quinoa, um, farro, um, wheat berries, those can all come into play. Um, and also legumes. I think that's or beans. Those are things that are often forgotten that provide really great plant-based protein, but they also provide really good complex carbohydrates and plenty of fiber that can be helpful if somebody's experiencing constipation during the course of treatment. Um, so really those whole greens that are intact legumes or beans, and then also like fruits can be a really great source of those good carbohydrates too. And I think the important piece to talk about when it comes to complex carbohydrates is that fiber is attached to these foods right? And fiber is one of the very key nutrients when it comes to adopting um, more of a, um, a diet that supports us throughout the course of treatment and can help reduce the risk of recurrence as well. Um, so when I'm teaching even like my seven-year-old daughter, right, we talk about, you know, how do you know if this is, you know, if this is a good food for us? And we talk about does it, does it grow on the earth like this? Did God make it like this? And that is a really easy way for her to determine like, oh yeah, this is a black bean. This, it grows in a pod like this. Like, yeah, it's great, you know? Mm -hmm. And so even as adults, we can think about it that way too. We just try to keep it simplified. If it's in its most whole food form, then that's one of the superior ways to consume that food. I like that, that I think making things as simple as possible, um, especially during treatment is really huge. Now, so have you finished your year of Herceptin? I did. Yes. I finished in August of 22. And then I had a second revision surgery in October of 20. Um, sorry. I finished in August of 23. Yeah. Um, and then had a revision, my second, a revision surgery in October of 23. Um, and then I'm currently on tamoxifen and the plan for that is for me for 10 years right now. Um, and then I probably have one more revision surgery left, but that is kind of, it's kind of in a holding pattern right now, just because of insurance and finances and so forth. So that might happen hopefully in 25. And can you talk a little bit about what survivorship looks like after being done with active treatment, continuing on tamoxifen? What has been your experience with tamoxifen? Yeah, um, I'll start with my experience for tamoxifen. So I've been on tamoxifen for almost exactly a year. Um, and I will say the first side effect that I experienced was, um, mood disturbance, I guess you could say is the best way. Um, I was experiencing, um, higher levels of depression that I'd ever experienced before. Um, I have a history of anxiety, but never had really specific depression. And it was, I noted it. I felt like it was kind of slowly getting worse. And then there was one weekend where we were talking about going for a walk with my family and, that's something that I love to do, right? Like get outside with the kids, go for a walk, go to the park. And I could not pull myself to do it. I remember like I went upstairs to 
like brush my teeth or get ready. And I remember just sitting in the recliner chair that was in our bedroom, which was from surgery and just sitting there, <clears throat> excuse me, and being like, this isn't me. This is not normal. Um, so I ended up going into for an acute visit with my medical team. And um, we had talked about, you know, the potential exacerbation that tamoxifen did in terms of um, mood disturbance and so forth. So I actually started on Effexor um, and feel like my normal self again. So that was um, well, the first side effect I experienced. I experienced, thankfully, very mild, minor, infrequent hot flashes. And um, I had had really horrible hot flashes when I was trying to get pregnant with my second child. Um, I did go through some fertility treatment. And so, you know, your hormones are kind of all over the place. Yeah. I remember saying to my husband, I love you, but don't touch me right now. Right. <laughs> type of thing. <laughs> and um, I experienced them so extreme that I'm not going to lie. Like thinking about taking tamoxifen for 10 years, like that was one of the things that I was like, I don't know if I want to do it. I don't want to experience what I experienced trying to get pregnant with my daughter because that it was so intense. And so I'm thankful to be able to say that I do not experience the hot flashes that way right now. Um, what I will note is that I do pay very close attention to my diet when it comes to nutrition for hot flashes as well, and focus on soy foods and flaxseed. And I notice that if I don't, if I don't stick with my routine of that, I notice that I have increases in more hot flashes. Um, so it's something that really helps, um, engage, encourage me to keep up with. There was a study, um, I forget it was published either a year or two ago, but it looked just at that at eating. I think it was like half a cup of cooked soybeans per day, significantly reduced the incidence of hot flashes. And I think it's yeah. great to actually witness that, you know, in your own body that when you don't eat as much. Um, and, you know, I think this is a good time to talk about soy because mm. just like with sugar, there's a lot of misinformation about soy. And we know that soy, again, in its minimally processed forms is safe and may even have a protective effect in breast cancer. Tell us about, put your professional hat on for a little bit. Sure. Tell us about the good, you know, what kind of soy products do you recommend? What do you recommend people kind of limit or stay away from? Sure. Absolutely. So kind of just like you said, we want to try to uh, focus on whole foods as much as possible. There are this was, uh, beneficial. And what I like to refer to those as like smartly processed foods, right? That there is a level of smart processing to them. So truly, ideally, you know, the best forms of it are going to be like edamame and tempeh and tempeh is fermented soybeans. And then also tofu and soy milk. Those are going to be some really incredible opportunities there. And also miso, um, less people are as familiar about miso, but it's um, essentially a soybean paste that's been fermented, has some really great um, benefits for our microbiome. So those are the ones that I like to really encourage. Um, now, when it comes to ones that I do want to discourage, it's going to be like, like soy protein isolate supplements, right? I don't want people to hear the benefits of soy and be like, oh, I'm going to go grab this powder and just like add it to all my foods. We really want to be conscious and mindful that we're consuming and focusing on more whole foods form of soy. Um, I personally really enjoy tofu a lot. Um, and also soy milk is really frequent in our house. Um, like I said, I have two little kids, a seven and a two-year-old and they, they consume soy milk. Um, and research actually shows that the greater, the benefit for breast cancer protection is actually when those foods are started in adolescence. So that's something that, um, is really important to me. And I think about my girls who potentially might have this genetic mutation as well and trying to set them for success, um, not only as child and into adolescence, but as they become adults and make their own decisions about food too. I think that's a really important point. You know, we do a lot of soy milk and I, we, you know, we try to get the soy milk that has the extra protein as well. Cause I feel like that's an easy way to get protein. And when I have two young girls they are five and seven, and one of the questions I've been asked is, well, you know, is, isn't it bad for them? Isn't it going to increase their breast cancer risk? Cause we don't, mm -hmm. they never really were big into any cow's milk, but we don't have it. We don't buy it. Um, and you know, the data really, like you said, supports that soy milk is safe, mm -hmm. um, you know, from multiple societies and organizations. Um, so I think that that's a good topic to always keep talking about because there is still so much anxiety about. So I think the other part that I tell people to kind of limit is like the soy nuggets, right? All those like, yeah. you know, because I think marketing, and I'm sure you see this all the time, just this great job of labeling something as plant-based, right? And it looks mm -hmm. so pretty and it's this like microwavable frozen bowl and then you look at it and it's all 
processed full of not great stuff. Yeah, I think, and to that point, I think when someone sees the headline of of plant-based or vegan and just kind of assume naturally that it's Mm -hmm. good for them, um, they've done a very good job with marketing, right? Especially as younger generations have chosen more plant-based options, whether it be for environmental reasons or health reasons. Um, But I also try to remind people that many of the companies that create these like fake meat products, et cetera, their mission behind it is primarily environmental, which is not wrong, but it just, what I'm saying about it is it just not necessarily mean it's like the healthiest approach. And it doesn't mean that you should never eat them or never include them into your diet. They can be really great transitional items for people, or they can be a really great every once in a while type product as well. Yeah. I think that that's an important point. And talking about food, I like to talk with my kids about food that you eat all of the time and foods that you eat sometime, you know, some of the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I think that's the same thing for, look, there are a lot of great vegan foods that aren't great for you, but they're delicious. Right. And Mm -hmm. those are Mm -hmm. like, are sometimes food, you know, some things like vegan cheese, right. A lot of that Mm -hmm. is, it is processed, um, Mm -hmm. but it can be something that you do once in a while, if you're trying to be vegan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think keeping in mind, like even like the vegan cheeses, they're going to be higher and usually like a coconut oil because mm-hmm. they need that fattiness and the coconut oil is high in saturated fat, which as breast cancer survivors, we do want to try to limit as much as possible. So a lot of those like fake vegan alternatives tend to be high in saturated fat. So they're not necessarily always like a, like in a superior um, option for trying to swap things out. It can be helpful if someone's goal is vegan for certain reasons, they can be really helpful, but it isn't necessarily a health food. Exactly. And I think, and we talk about it in the context of breast cancer, we know that aromatase inhibitors really increase, they have a chance of increasing cholesterol. And so we do want to be really mindful about the foods that people are eating. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And I have a question for you, if you don't mind, Um, if we can share with some of the community, why might oncologists be in this day and age still telling people to avoid soy. Do you have any perspective on that with some of the colleagues or people that you've gone to med school or what might be that reasoning that we're still hearing it so frequent and especially maybe more in the medical community coming from um, providers? I think that is a really great question and kind of speaks to oncology nutrition as a whole, right? You went to school for this, like you have this focus training. There is really little to none nutrition training for oncologists. Um, And I came out of fellowship um, really knowing nothing about oncology nutrition. I had no training in it. And so it really wasn't until, I I mean, I used to tell people and I I cringe when I hear that, but I used to tell people, oh, during chemo, eat whatever you want. You know, it's just calories. And and I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, no, right now I really modify that to tell people, you know, if you really are craving your comfort food, absolutely don't deny yourself of that. But when you feel good, or if you can plan in advance, you know, we want the protein forward and the healthy fats and the complex carbohydrates and the fiber um, to really fuel. So I think what happens is people get very little training and or no, no training. And then a lot of times, and I think this when people don't know something, right, they're kind of they shy they shy away from it. Um, they're nervous to talk about it or to educate patients because they're not sure. Um, and I will say it also takes time. It takes time to educate yourself. It takes time to have these conversations in the office with patients. You know, there's already limited time. There's so much to cover. And so I think what happens is people um, don't get information. They go online and sometimes, you know, they see some good information like what you do and what you're providing, but they also see some not good information. And when they take it back to their oncologist, a lot of times the oncologist doesn't know how to guide them just because they don't have that education. And there's no, a lot of cancer centers don't have dedicated nutritionists. Um, so it just, it kind of spirals. So I don't think, you know, I think when people are told not to eat soy, I don't, to be honest, think it comes from like a bad place. Mm-hmm. I think it really comes from a lack of education and information. And you know, there are, as we learn more and more studies out there focusing on nutrition, they don't tend to be as splashy sometimes, um, or they get over sensationalized. And I think the challenge with nutrition as a whole, and I'm sure you see this is when you look at studies, you know, a lot of these ask for like, ask patients, well, what did you eat a year ago, right? Or how many times in the last year did you eat red meat? And then they kind of follow it based on that. And there's a lot of bias and recall bias on these things. So it's hard to do quality nutrition studies. 
Um, it's hard to do quality risk reduction and prevention studies. So I think that's a big part of what we're lacking. But what is left with is that patients are in the middle with not great information always and kind of struggling, right? And I think that then just spirals a lot of this misinformation that people can encounter. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you sharing your perspective on that and even sharing the perspective that you used to say, eat whatever you want. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Right. And as an oncology dietitian, I was talking to a client just yesterday, you know, like I rather have you eat something than nothing, right? Like there is a difference of the nutrition approaches that we take during the course of treatment versus, you know, into survivorship, because we, we need to get fuel, we need to get protein, you know, and if there's certain ways to get that, then we just have to do it. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that's important. And also I can't remember the data specifically, but I remember, you know, a large percentage of patients look to their physician for nutrition information, yet there was a study that was done on medical school graduates and how, how well prepared do they feel to answer their nutrition questions from their patients. And it was upwards until like the 80 to 90% of physicians that did not feel prepared to be able to ask those questions. Um, and so, I mean, that is, and part of the reason I asked that is because that are, those are roadblocks that I experience as a dietitian is that, you know, why didn't my oncology t- oncologist tell me this? Um, and, you know, trying to explain to patients that, you know, I went to six years of specialized school for this, right? Like I would never like, it's one of those things is like, your, your oncologist knows the treatments and the cancer itself and all of this front and back. And that's what I want them to know. And then be able to cre- create the right referrals to the right, you know, professionals to be able to do that. Kind of like, I wouldn't necessarily expect my oncologist to give me the right PT recommendations after surgery, maybe some broad general guidance, but not the specific protocol. So, you know, it's something that I look for is like, how can we do more comprehensive care that, you know, meets all of these different needs and have these different specialized who really specialize in what we're doing. And I think that's exactly it. That as you know, I think there's new many levels to this, but at the bottom of it is that your oncologist truly is one member, an important member, but one member of your team. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, and I think what happens is, and again, we're in this world where we do have limited time with patients and that's a much bigger issue, but um, you know, your oncologist is, going to help you and guide you. But I think that the key is referring to different people who have expertise and training in that dietitians, physical therapists, acupuncturists, um, you know, cardiologists, you know, heart, like all of these things, right? The list that mm-hmm. I, I shared about this once, and I mean, there was, you know, dozens of people who can be part of your team. But then you come back to, well, all of these services cost money and time. And I think that what happens is um, some of them are covered and some of them are not. And sometimes people can't afford it because a copay to just come to the doctor is $60, right? And those add up, um, the financial toxicity of treatment, but the time toxicity. And what I hear from a lot of people is I could do it, but I just, I I don't have time. I'm worried about taking time off work. I can't take time off work or I'm just so burnt out from being a patient and going to all these appointments and telling my story one more time. So I I don't have a good solution for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the more you can get in one building and one roof, you know, in a comprehensive facility is good, but that's not, that's Mm -hmm. not always the case. And I think virtual um, appointments can be really useful, right? Because that's a little bit something Mm -hmm. on your own time and you offer virtual, right? I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that is helpful for people to be in their own environment and in their own space when they're talking to you? Absolutely. You know, I used to offer a, a kind of both and have like a local office and so forth. And actually with my own diagnosis, I let go of the office because I was just wasn't there as much and find that like the virtual appointments are really great. Although one-on-one in person can be really great for that relationship building. One of the greatest benefits is there. I'm like, Oh, what, what of this product are you using? And they're like, Oh, let me go get it. And they, and they go, right. Like that they feel like, Oh, that's really helpful. Right. And I think the other option is like, you know, they get to stay in the comfort of their own home. You know, it's zero. Wisconsin, like you want to leave half. So that makes it, that makes it helpful. Um, and also, you know, also from the perspective of, I do have the opportunity to be able to spend a lot of time with a patient and I'll provide a lot of support that isn't, available in, you know, the oncologist's office. Right. Um, and I I've said before, and you, you, I can tell you, obviously, you know, the nutrition research really well too. Not a lot of oncologists do. I'm like, 
I would, I would rather have my oncologist reading all those new studies about the new treatments and the new yeah. options, like let them do that. Let me be the nutrition nerd and mm-hmm. be the one who reads the nutrition studies. And then that way we can bring the best of it all together to really provide that really helpful component for a patient. And I just want to touch on one thing that you said, because I totally agree. And I've experienced as a patient, like the, the burnout of going to appointments, like over and over, right. When you start your car and your phone tells you, oh, it takes this many minutes to get to the cancer center. And it happens how many days a week, right? Like that was like, especially when I was done with treatment, I was like, I'm not going there today, you know, but I do think, keep in mind that there can be certain professionals, um, that even though it's going to take time and it takes a little extra work, the payoff in the long run can be so beneficial, right? I was just talking to a client the other day who is post-mastectomy and is having difficulty with like range of motion in her shoulders and so forth. And I said, and we were talking about this exact thing. And I said, have you seen a physical therapist since your surgery. And she's like, no, it's just one more thing. And I was like, I agree. But however, if we can get you in, and even if you just see them once and they can give you certain mm-hmm. recommendations for something you can do at home, I really think that time input is going to really benefit. Right. And same thing for, you know, when you're seeing a dietitian, of course, I'm going to be biased and think I'm valuable to work with, but you know, if we can help reduce your fatigue by choosing the right choices and showing you the really easy ways to incorporate this into your diet and lifestyle, it's going to make the rest of treatment or ease into survivorship that much easier. So I totally get it from the time, the investment, the exhaustion. Um, so I always like to remind people like pick something that's going to give you the greatest outcome, whether it be PT or acupuncture and, and start there, because even there, if you can start to feel just a little bit better, it can give you so much more energy and ability to do kind of take the next step then. Absolutely. I think there's, and I, I, exactly that I tell people I know it feels like a lot but even like you said one visit they can give you things and some of it is you know there's that burnout in the short run but the payoff in the long run right and there are some things that absolutely can wait um, but there are some things that you don't want to put off and I think therapy you know therapy mental health physical therapy those two things dietitians um, you know those few specialists and resources really, I think making an investment early on can be huge. And sometimes I tell people like, I get that you don't want to go now, or maybe not even in the next month, but make an appointment two months from now, right? You get yourself that break, but then you have that. Um, And same thing with like preventive health services going forward, seeing your gynecologist, getting your colonoscopy, going for your skin check, um, again, those are just things people are like, I, I don't, I can't deal with this right now. Mm-hmm. They're important also. So it's hard. It's about, I don't, I don't think there's a way. Yeah. It's, it's so different. I had a colonoscopy right in the middle of treatment and it's not what I really wanted to be doing <laughs> at that time, but I was glad that I did it and had the outcome, like, you know, saw the outcomes that I did and like, okay, I can wait five more years. Um, because my mutation increases that risk. Like, okay, five more years, I get a little break from it. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot, but, um, I, I think, it's all an investment in your health. And again, short-term versus long-term. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, Allison, before we wrap up, I mean, this, we could talk forever. This was so great. Is there anything yeah. we didn't touch on or anything that you want to share? Mm, no, I think, I, I think we talked about the things that I thought were kind of highlighted to be the most important. Is there anything you can think of? Um, actually, one more question is that we've been talking about this a lot. Um, you know, it's January, it's dry, people are doing dry January, and there's a lot of discussion about alcohol. And, you know, there's a lot of people, everyone has complicated relationships and emotions about alcohol. But tell me a little bit about how you, you know, what I see, and we tell people, look, you don't have to 100% abstain from alcohol. A drink, you know, say less than three drinks a week, that seems to be kind of where your risk is at the lowest um, compared to drinking more than that. But I, I have a lot of patients who express a lot of guilt over drinking anything. Um, and, and I always tell people, you know, some people did make the decision to completely abstain from alcohol, but other people say, no, I'm out with friends. I want to have a glass of wine, but I feel so guilty about it. How do you navigate some of that counseling about alcohol in your practice? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I do think people are kind of all across the board in terms of where they are and what some people, like you said, like, nope, giving it up and they don't 
bat an eye at it again, yeah. and other people have more difficulty. I think where I start is trying to understand what do they enjoy about drinking, right? Because if it's, um, because when I investigate a little bit further, sometimes I'm trying to like break some barriers of some beliefs that they've held that, um, are the reasons why they drink, not necessarily because they enjoy it, but maybe because they feel like they should, right. They feel like they should in that social setting or, um, so trying to understand the reasoning why a little bit. Um, one of the things I usually say to people is like, if you don't drink, don't start, right. There's no reason, especially the benefit of a child and red wine. And it's like, well, you know, that's not really worth the risk from yeah. that standpoint. Um, and then also I think that what's really important is similar to what you talked about when it comes to, um, the data that we have available, we know that alcohol, especially like the alphanol and the acetaldehyde, et cetera, that, you know, was all associated with cancer risk and alcohol is that one drink is not going to cause cancer in itself. Right. And just like one food or eating one particular food every once in a while, it's not necessarily going to cause cancer in itself. Right. It's really, what does the overall picture look like in terms of the overall diet? So that would be another consideration that I have for somebody is trying to take the guilt away from the standpoint of like what you do in very minimal occasional situations isn't necessarily going to raise that risk or cause something. Yeah. It's what you do most of the time that really makes a difference. Right. And so I think sometimes as cancer survivors, I can totally relate to the fear and the anxiety of, I don't want to do anything wrong to increase my risk. Right. But trying to settle somebody from the standpoint of like, if you hear there, if you have a dr one drink a week and you choose to have it when you have book club with your girlfriends, cause that's something that you really love, but if you can limit it to one, that would be an ideal place to do or encourage them to talk about other opportunities for mocktails or things that they enjoy, because sometimes kind of going back to why do they do it? Sometimes they just like to have something in their hand while other people have something in their hand too. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and it's really interesting to be able to walk people through this. And I usually do tell my clients that, um, I've never drank, um, that it's not something that I've ever, but I've participated in events where people are drinking. Right. And often sometimes it, the, the idea of drinking sometimes is that they don't like, they'll get comments from other people that make that are making the situation uncomfortable yeah. because they're not drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, I have experienced that a lot as somebody who's never drank. Um, and one of them happened during treatment. We were at a brew fest and I live in Wisconsin. It's like the land of beer, cheese and sausage. Right. Um, and an older gentleman was pestering me about why I wasn't drinking. And I'm very much, a. I'm a people pleaser. And that, so I just kind of let it be. And I just said, Oh, just not today. You know, and I do want to say that after my diagnosis, I've gotten a little bit more courageous with how I respectfully respond to somebody. Right. And my response to that, if he had done it one more time was going to be, you know, I'm going through cancer treatment right now. And that's why I'm choosing not to drink the, the, the bummer about that is I shouldn't have to explain that I shouldn't, my choice is my choice, but I do think if people, if that's some of the reason behind the social part of it is they don't want people to question them. They don't want people to push them. Um, it's uncomfortable at first you get better at it. And I've had a lot of experience in that getting better at it. Um, and so long story short, depending on where that person is, why they like to drink, is it because they actually like the wine themselves itself or the actual drink or are there other reasons and trying to work through that with someone? Because I think a lot of times people forget that nutrition and nutrition coaching and counseling, it's, there's a lot more mental there than there actually is physical. I, I think there's a lot of health coaching in general that kind of break because you're, you're getting to the bottom of why people are making certain decisions. And there's mm -hmm. a, there's a lot to that. Thank you. That was really such a wonderful conversation. Where can people find you, connect with you, find out more about what you do? Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much again for having me. It's been a true pleasure. Um, so people, my most active social media is Instagram. I'm at wholesome.cancer.nutrition. Um, and then also I am on Facebook, just not as active there. 
Um, and my website is one of the best places to go to learn more about me, learn more about what I do, um, different programs I have, or just recipes and blogs. Uh, and that website is wholesomellc.com. So I'd love for people just, even if you just want to say hi on Instagram or shoot me an email, I'd love to just connect with other survivors or individuals that are looking to reduce the risk of um, cancer itself um, with you know a plant-predominant approach and nutrition and all the things we talked about today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this conversation. I could have talked to Allison forever. She is such an incredible resource and has so much knowledge to offer us about nutrition and her experiences as a cancer thriver and survivor. I urge you to make sure that you are following her on all of the platforms that she is listed. As a reminder, she is on social media on Instagram at wholesome.cancer.nutrition. And you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on all social media platforms. If you enjoyed this episode or any others of the podcast, I would be so grateful if you can take a moment to leave a rating or review for the Interlude podcasts on Apple or Spotify, as that really helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for being here and I will see you soon. 